The following Lighthouse Talk is distributed by the Augustan Institute, whose mission is to help you understand, live, and share your faith. To order additional copies of this presentation, browse our selection of over 300 inspiring titles in English and Spanish, or receive more information on becoming an Augustan Institute parish consultant or emissary to help answer the Holy Father's call for a new evangelization. Please visit our website at www.augustaninstitute.org forward slash talks or call us toll free at 866-526-2151. Dr. Tim Gray is a lifelong Catholic, a husband, a father, a nationally renowned scripture scholar, and the president of the Augustan Institute, which is widely known for its graduate school of theology, as well as its video-based study programs, books, audio presentations, parish programs, and formed.org. Dr. Gray is also a well-known Catholic speaker and the author of numerous books, including Praying Scripture for a Change, An Introduction to Lexio Divina, Mission of the Messiah, and his latest release, Peter, Keys to Following Jesus. He has lived and studied in Israel, leads annual pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and has created numerous Bible studies, many of which have been aired on EWTN. Here now is Dr. Tim Gray. Well, it's a joy to be with you and to talk about the Reformation and what the Catholic Reformation was. In talking about the Reformation, I'm going to talk about who the true Reformers are in the life of the Church. And when we talk about the Reformation, I think one of the beautiful things 500 years later is that the fighting and the violence is over, and now I think there's a chance of deeper ecumenism and deeper reunion between Protestants and Catholics. So we are in a new place right now. And I think part of that is that Protestants and Catholics find that we have larger enemies. We have the devil and we have the world. They seek both of us to destroy us both. When we get to October, to the 500th anniversary, the world is going to be talking about the Reformation. And why will the world be interested in the Reformation? Because Protestantism is a pure and great form of Christianity? No, they don't care about Protestantism. The world is going to use the Reformation to show, see, 500 years ago, the church was corrupt. And it's still corrupt today. It hasn't changed. Religion is corrupt. And the message the world is going to take from this is that religion is always corrupt, so give up religion. There's this false view, and you're going to hear it. The problem of reform, it's not simply that the church is corrupt. It's that the church is filled with the daughters and the sons of Adam and Eve. As long as the church and religion is composed of human beings, the church will need reform. It's a perpetual need. It's the nature of humanity. It's not that religion is corrupt. It's that we are corrupt. If you leave religion and look at, you know, the government, I I grew up in Illinois, uh, known for pristine politicians. There's no corruption there, right? Is there corruption without religion? Look at communism. And the communists who pushed out religion, was there no corruption in the communists in the Soviet Union? 
course there was corruption. Corruption is not a problem of religion. Corruption is a problem of human beings. The only hope for human beings is to be reformed by authentic religion that can renew and transform our corruption, our selfishness. And so we have a common Lord, and so there's a great hope for deeper unity between our Protestant brothers and sisters. It's interesting that my dissertation was published by Tübingen Press and Morzebeck in Tübingen in Germany, which is the leading German Lutheran biblical publisher. And they published a young budding Catholic scholar, which is pretty amazing. And then in the United States, it was Baker Academic, which is a typically Calvinist publisher in Michigan, that republished my dissertation. And they just came to me and asked if the Augustine Institute would work with them in doing a series of seven books on a biblical theology of the seven sacraments. And they are, they are in the, it's, which is really quite amazing, right? This is the leading evangelical Protestant publisher on biblical theology and biblical scholarship. Now, of course, you know Luther. In 1517, he nailed his 95 theses to the doors of Wittenberg Church Castle. And those 95 theses started a reform, but really a revolution, as we'll see how it goes. You could say what Charles Dickens said at the beginning of A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom and an age of foolishness. It was an era of light and an era of darkness. It was an epic of belief and an epic of incredulity. And I think that tumultuous time of the early 16th century, and of course Luther nails those theses, and once he does that, once he puts his 95 theses up, it sparks a huge fervor and ultimately sparks chaos. But there was a reform already underway. And I want to talk about the lessons of that reform because the church and everyone knew, it wasn't that all of a sudden people realized, wow, we need reform. Reform was the buzzword. Reform was the issue at hand. Everyone knew the church needed reform. And the question was, how was it to be undertaken? That was the question. And one of the reasons I'm so interested in this era is because I see that what happened 500 years ago in a culture and time where there was information revolution, and that information got out in fragmented ways and caused confusion, and it overtook and shook up the old ways of thinking. We are in a new era very similar to this. And of course, one of the things that happens is the printing presses invented about a generation before Luther. But he uses it to great ends to get his message out. And so all of a sudden, tracks are going out by Luther about the need for reform. And the printing press is causing great changes in culture. There hasn't been an era more similar since 500 years ago. Because now the new invention, the new printing press, is the digital revolution. Digital technology is transforming the way people consume and get information. Do you know that on your smartphones, people stream the internet twice as much now in a day on their smartphones than they do on their computers or laptops? 
In the last two years, that's happened. And there's no looking back. It's a digital revolution. Even people who are 65 and older, over 80% get online daily in some studies I've seen. So it's remarkable, this digital revolution. And so my hope is, by looking back at the Reformation and this tumultuous time, what lessons can we learn for how the church grapples with radical cultural change and at the same time grapples with the need for reform? Because reform is something perpetual in the life of God's people. Any student of Scripture knows that Israel didn't just simply have one period that they needed reform. The people of God needed reform perpetually, continuously. And whenever the people of God became successful, their success became their own demise. And so a good example of that is David fights for the kingdom, and he conquers Jerusalem, establishes the crown there. And then the next generation, his son Solomon doesn't have to fight. He inherits great wealth, great power, And what does Solomon do? He builds the temple. That's a good thing. But he builds his palace, his personal palace, twice as large as the temple. And he taxes the people in a tyrannical way. So much so that Solomon brings in 666 talents of gold in taxation a year. The number 666 that will only be used that time in the Old Testament that will be used in the book of Revelation to describe the beast who taxes the people so harshly that he bleeds the people dry by tyrannical taxation. The number of the beast is 666. Well, because of Solomon's taxation policies, there's a revolt. The ten tribes revolt in Israel. And those ten tribes break away from Judah. And there's a split between the north and the south in the kingdom of Israel. And that split... You could blame it on Jeroboam, who leads the ten tribes in the north. But we know from the biblical perspective that the fault lies with Solomon and his selfishness and the corruption of his son, Rehoboam, and the leadership around Rehoboam. The fault of the split was the corruption of God's people. And the split was a punishment. Now, with Jeroboam and those who break away in the ten tribes, God allows them to break away politically It's when they break from Jerusalem and the priesthood of the Levites and the temple cult, that's when the ten tribes get in trouble. But I feel that we were in similar shoes because what sparks Luther to nail those 95 theses is a building project in Rome that ends up incentivizing the selling of indulgences as well as the selling of bishoprics. What is the Catholic response to this? What is the Catholic response to the problem of corruption. In the Counter-Reformation, the church realizes that a lot of people might be sacramentalized, but they're not catechized, and they're oftentimes not evangelized. Well, there's an Augustinian who's a leader amongst Augustinian monks who goes down to Rome in 1512, and he has a doctorate in scripture, and he makes an appeal to the Holy Father and to the bishops and cardinals of Rome for the church to get focused on reform and to return to the scriptures, and that the bride of Christ must arise once again. Who is that Augustinian monk who has a doctorate in scripture who appeals to the Pope for reform in 1512? You're right, Giles of Viterbo. (laughs) 
He was doing a reform movement amongst the Augustinians, going back to scripture and preaching with fervor. And he was called to kick off a council, the Fifth Lateran Council in 1512. And he gives an opening address. And in that opening address, he says something very significant. He says, men should not change religion, but religion men. Men should not change religion, but religion men. And what was happening is that out of Rome was coming dispensations and exceptions for monks living poverty and for all kinds of other things happening. So the rules of the original orders of the Franciscans or the Augustinians and the devotions were being relaxed and relaxed such that monasteries or even conventional Franciscans owned tens of thousands of acres in their monasteries and convents and they lived in luxury. And so the people began to despise them. Now, why did the church have so much wealth? Because the church throughout the Middle Ages took care of the people of God. Because Francis and Dominic sent out these mendicants that preached and took care of people spiritually and led them to Christ and taught them that temporal goods are exactly that. The goods of this world are temporary. The eternal goods should be pursued. And so the lay people were generous with their temporal goods and gave them to the church and gave them to the monks. But then in the next generation and the next generation, monks and friars who began to inherit great wealth began to see the problem that when the church has more money than mission, the church gets in trouble. When individuals have more money than mission, they get in trouble. But there's times when the people of God and the forms of religion need reform. And so one of the things that was a phrase used throughout the medieval period was reform in the head and in the members of the body of Christ. That was one of the rallying cries. And Giles of Iturbo challenges the church. And when he does this, you know, as I said, he said, men must be changed by religion, not religion by men. He then goes on in his opening speech, and he quotes from the Song of Songs, which was the most popular commentary in the Middle Ages. And the Song of Songs depicted the nature of the church as the bride of Christ more than anything else. And so Giles of Iturbo takes up this image of the church as the bride, and he says to the Holy Father, Julius II, and to the bishops and cardinals, Deep waters cannot quench love, but the church and the bride of Christ is in a winter, and the bride has become paralyzed and dormant. She's not active. She's in a winter. It's interesting that Giles uses this imagery that the church is in a winter, and he takes this imagery from the Song of Songs, because it'll be Pope John Paul II calling for a new evangelization who will use the image that the church is on the verge of a new springtime. Now, don't you love John Paul II? He talked about we're on the cusp of a new springtime. What does that mean where we are seasonally? Winter. He saw the winter, but he called us to the spring. He saw the problems, but he called us to hope. Because it was a supernatural hope in Jesus Christ that could overcome the problems of the world. John Paul II was a saint. 
And that's what it takes to be a true reformer. This is a man who grew up with the Nazis. And then liberated from the Nazis, you think, yes, finally. And then he ended up with the communists. So this is a man who had supernatural hope. Now, Giles, who talks about the church as a bride, it's such a powerful image, this idea of the church as a bride. And we're waiting for this reform. And Giles wasn't the only one seeking reform. And this is, by the way, five years before Luther nails his 95 Theses, when Giles gives this speech. Now, there was another great reformer in Spain, Cardinal Francisco Jimenez. And Jimenez was made a cardinal in 1495 by another key reformer, a great woman of God, Isabella of Spain, who has the status of servant of God. And Isabella saw that the Archdiocese of Toledo was open. The Archbishop Cardinal of Toledo died. And so she wanted to fill that position. And so she heard about this Franciscan who was very holy and devout. So she asked him to preach to her and give her a retreat. And she was won over by his austerity and his holiness. So she called him in to be her confessor. And he said, politely said, I can't be your confessor to come to court. I have to live in my monastery, but I'll come and do retreats and be your confessor from time to time. But I, don't make me live at court. Because Jimenez was a diocesan priest who started to do things that his bishop, who was corrupt, didn't like, and he threw him in prison for five years. And after that five years, he didn't come back hardened and bitter about the church. He decided to live a deeper poverty, and he observed this renewal movement amongst the Franciscans, the observant Franciscans, and he became a Franciscan. And that's how Isabel heard about him. So Isabel wants to make him the new Cardinal of Toledo, but she knows that he's a humble man and won't want the office. So she writes to the Holy Father to ask for him to be made the Archbishop of Toledo. And she gets the letter from the Pope, and she doesn't open it, and she asks Jimenez to come in, and something just came from the Holy Father. Could you read it for me? So she goes and sits at her desk, and he starts to read it, you know, about the new to fill the sea for Toledo, and he's reading this, and all of a sudden he gets to his name, and he stops reading. And he drops the document, and Isabel looks up, and he's going through the door, and he's running. (laughs) And she goes to get her servant, stop him, and he's already out, and he's fleeing. And so she has to get one of the servants to chase him down on horseback to bring him back. And he refuses. He says, "I'm I'm not going to do that. And then she has to write the Holy Father another letter saying, would you write another letter forcing Jimenez to accept this position? So six months later it comes, and he has to submit. And he starts a great reform in Spain. One of the first things he does is he demands that all clergy who have concubines have to give up their concubines or lose their office. Somewhere between 400 And some other numbers are a thousand Franciscans who have concubines decide to go to North Africa and become Muslim. There was deep corruption and problems. So then he goes on and he begins to have an audit of the parishes, of the benefices and the endowments and how they're being spent and used. And he starts to check up on the money. And that leads to a lot of pushback and controversy, but he starts to clean up the finances of the church. And then he tells them about preaching. But then he creates a university in Alcala. 
and he forms this new university because one of the great problems at this time is clergy didn't have seminary training. That wasn't invented yet. You were just usually assigned to a priest as an apprentice, and you would get all kinds of menial tasks, and then maybe if you learned Latin, maybe if you didn't, that was one of the regulations that they had up, you would become ordained without much education or formation. And so Jimenez creates a college because he realizes if we're going to have true reform, we need true formation. There's no reform without formation. So Jimenez starts this university. And then one of the first projects he does is he gathers some of the best scholars, one who is a Jewish scholar who's converted to Catholicism, and he has them work on a new Bible. And he publishes this Bible. And it's an amazing project. So here is the Bible he publishes. Hebrew, the Latin Vulgate in the middle, and then the Greek on the side. And so he publishes the Bible in Hebrew, the Latin Vulgate, and in Greek. And he creates with this, he publishes a Greek grammar and a Hebrew grammar and a Greek dictionary and a Hebrew dictionary so that priests and others can be educated in the Word of God. It's an amazing thing. And this gets published before Luther nails the 95 Theses. So there's this renewal in Spain. This is why when the Protestant storm starts, it doesn't hit Spain. Because Jimenez had already begun the reform. The reform of the clergy. The education of the clergy. Now Jimenez also used the printing press to get out books and spiritual reading for the lady. And these books started to to spread throughout Spain for spiritual devotions, the lives of the saints, the life of Christ. And that had powerful effects. And it was powerful seeds. Because again, Jimenez knew that without formation, the people of God could not be reformed. He creates the university for the training of priests and a new scholarship, but he gets the publishing house to do popular books. I like to think of Jimenez as kind of the, the Father Fessio of the 16th century. Right? He's getting all these books out that are having a good effect. And what happens with that? Well, there's a Spanish soldier who in 1521, in the Battle of Pamplona, he gets injured by a cannonball. And as he's in a long convalescence, he's got nothing to do. It's boring sitting in bed. This is before formed.org. <laughs> so he couldn't watch any movies or anything. <laughs> so what does he do? He says, give me something to read. Give me some of those you know, chivalric romance novels. And they don't have any. All they have is two books. One by Ludolf a monk from Saxony called The Life of Christ, and another called The Golden Legend. Now, as he reads those books, Ignatius will be transformed. Guess how he got those books? Cardinal Jimenez published Ludolf's Life of Christ. That wasn't accidental. Publishing that book, getting that book out there, a young Spanish soldier reads... Ludolf's life of Christ. And then he reads this golden legend, which is the lives of the saints. And he reads about St. Francis of Assisi, who goes to battle. He's taken captive. He's taken prisoner. And he goes through a spiritual crisis. And then Francis realizes he's going to go off on his second campaign. Christ calls him to fight under his banner. And Ignatius says, I'm a soldier. I wanted to be a knight with glory, like Francis. Ignatius is from the noble class. 
And Ignatius has his imagination captured by ultimate glory, by a new plot, a deeper story that grabs his heart and his mind. And that's going to lead to his incredible conversion. And what will Ignatius do? He's going to spend the next three years in deep spiritual introspection and prayer, from which will come the genesis of his exercises, his spiritual exercises. Now, after he goes on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, Ignatius comes back and he's had this deep encounter, this deep spiritual formation that he's gone through, and he wants to start forming others. And he gets called in by the Inquisition. And they say, you're not educated. They find out that he's teaching things that are right, but he's not educated. Now, here is the test for Ignatius. Is he going to say, oh, how dare you authorities tell me I'm not educated enough? I know Christ. I've gone through this incredible mystical experience. I've been to the Holy Land. My life's been transformed. Here, Ignatius does something radical. In radical humility, he obeys. And he goes back to school. I was talking to Father Spitzer about this a couple days ago. And Father Spitzer reminded me that not only did he go back to school to get a you know, college education, but he had to go back to grammar school. Here is this noble knight trained to be an officer in the military, and now he's got to go back and not just do his undergraduate degree, but he has to go back before that. And he's in his early 30s, and he's in classes with teenagers, 13, 14, 15-year-olds. The humility to do that. Ignatius will spend the next nine years getting a deep education and formation. But because he obeyed and got that education, First university he goes to is the University of Alcala, the one that Cardinal Jimenez started. Then he'll end up in his later graduate studies at the University of Paris. Well, he'll meet people like Xavier, who will be a very helpful companion for him, and six other companions. But one of the things that the Jesuits will do is they will make at the center of their apostolate the deep spiritual exercises and the deep spiritual formation that Ignatius experienced along with a deep education that is a deep formation. And by the 1560s, by the 1560s, there will be over 150 Jesuit colleges in Europe. And that kind of deep formation is what is crucial for the reform. Deep formation leads to deep reformation. And renewal. Now, there's so many great stories about Ignatius and others here. I want to move to another story. How do you reform the institutions and how do you reform the individuals? Well, there's a religious sister who's a Carmelite and she comes from a pretty decent, well established family and she's in this convent, but it's a comfortable convent because there's lots of wealth. And so she's gone many years as a sister in comfort. And she reads a new translated work of St. Augustine. And she reads the account of Augustine's confessions in Book 8, where Augustine talks about his conversion, where he says he has a divided will. He wants God, but he doesn't want God all the way. He wants to believe and really follow Jesus Christ. He wants chastity, but not yet, as he prays. Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Right? But he talks in this beautiful way about a divided will. That we want to be holy, but we really don't will it fully. And 
Augustine reflects on the corruption of our will, that we tend to be selfish and we tend to be half-hearted in our willing and resolution. And Teresa of Avila reads this, and she's convicted. She realizes that although she's a nun and she does her prayers and she's not any great sinner, she has not been grateful to what God's given her. And she hasn't been all in for Christ. And she goes through what she calls her true and deep conversion. And so she starts to try to renew the Carmelites, her Carmelite convent. And the Carmelite nuns with her don't want that. So she goes and leaves that convent and starts a new convent that's going to be very observant, discalced, which means without sandals. In other words, it's going to be rigorous. Rigorous in prayer and aestheticism, living the rule deeply. And part of the reform movement, by the way, is a phrase that was used as ad fontes, back to the sources, back to the origins. Well, for the Carmelites, they want to go back to the true rigor of their origins. And so Teresa does that. She causes havoc in the city as she starts this new order because her other sisters feel like it's a rejection of them and of their convent. She didn't say, no, I'm not rejecting you, but I feel like the call to live more rigorously. Well, fast forward now a number of years. She's now started eight new convents according to this new discalced rule, a rigorous rule of Carmelite. But now there's opposition. And now there's persecution. The provincial head of the Carmelites is worried about a civil war amongst the Carmelites because you have the discalced who are living rigorous rules and then you have basically the regular Carmelites who aren't. And so then he tries to suppress the renewal movement so that there's unity. Right? And what happens? He tells Teresa she has to leave her convent and she can't start any more convents of reform and that she has to go back to her old convent. He thinks this is going to stop her and the reform. So then he sets up a perfect storm for her. He demands that her old convent, the convent of the Incarnation, take her back as prioress, as the Mother Superior. So as she's making her way into the city, the whole city is out. They hear about this. And they're shouting and screaming and throwing things at Teresa and heckling her as she's making her way to the convent. She gets to the convent doors and it's barricaded from within. The sisters don't want her. And it was against the rules that a prioress would be given, the mother superior would be given without an election. And she was the one who betrayed them by leaving. She was the last one they wanted. So as she enters, and they break through the barricade, and as she enters, the sisters are screaming and crying. A less propitious beginning of a new (laughs) leadership cannot be imagined. And what does Teresa of Avila do? And here is the example of reforming from within corrupt institutions. The first thing she does when she calls the sisters together, they see the chair of the mother superior, the seat where the mother would sit. And when the sisters gather later that evening, who do they see sitting in that chair? A statue of the Blessed Mother. And Teresa off to the side. And Teresa approaches her new role, she says, I know you didn't ask for me, and I know you didn't ask for this more rigorous rule, so I'm not going to impose the rigorous rule on you. Those of you who want to follow it are welcome to. I won't impose it on you. I will be living it while I'm here. And then she immediately takes the most menial tasks in the convent, even though she's the mother superior. 
something that Mother Teresa of Calcutta would do. Mother Teresa of Calcutta always cleaned the toilets wherever she was. And she got that from Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila takes the most menial tasks. Well, what happens now, after three years, she's won the sisters over. And then she's able to go out and start to do more reform. But then again, there's a persecution, and they bring her back and tell her to go back to the convent, not as Mother Superior. And when she goes back to the convent of the Incarnation, the sisters take her back. But not only do they take her back, they do something that the provincial never expected. They vote her freely as the new Mother Superior, and they adopt the rigorous rule. By her humility and her love, she won them over. And of course, one of the things she did when she came into that convent, she got a new spiritual director for the convent, Carmelite priest you probably never heard of named John of the Cross. <laughs> she had some good help. Now there's so many other things that happen in the reform, but the Council of Trent comes in this next generation in the midst of the 16th century, and there's this growing sense of a need for reform, and so it starts to build more and more momentum. And of course, there's going to be great saints like St. Charles Borromeo, who's going to be a leader at this council. And one of the things they realize is that what caused the reform, they had a commission. And the number one thing that they said caused the Reformation was an ignorance of Scripture and a lack of preaching and teaching the faith. So the council focuses on reform. And so what's the first thing they do? They say that we need to create teaching for priests. And they call these new institutions that teach priests and give formation to priests seminaries. This is where seminaries are invented. And it's seminary because the Latin word seminary comes from the Latin word seed. Because the seminaries are to be the place where the seed, the word of God. Remember Jesus tells the parable of the sower who sows the seed, which is the word of God. And the church needs to sow that seed again. And so we need seminaries to train men in preaching and teaching of the scriptures so the people of God can hear the word of God because without hearing the word, as Paul says in Romans 10, how can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if no one preaches to them? So part of the reform of Trent is that priests must preach from the scriptures and bishops have to stay in the diocese and be teachers and proclaim the word of God. And so there's this great renewal that builds with more fervor Charles Borromeo does another thing that I want to just highlight in this reform. It's the renewal of art. One of the treatises in Trent is about Catholic art. Catholic art had become a venue for artists to unleash their creativity, but not necessarily at the service of the divine and the sacred. So one artist from Verona once did a Last Supper that had buffoons and dwarves, and worst of all, for some people, Germans, in the Last Supper scene. And... He was called in because Trent's cracking down on this. And they said, how could you have these things in the Last Supper? And he said, oh, that's not the Last Supper. That's Jesus at the house of Matthew, the tax collector. (laughs) So he got out of it. But the point was, (laughs) Charles Borromeo started to reform art. And if you've ever made a pilgrimage to Rome, you go to the Counter-Reformation churches or like St. Augustino and the new church of St. Philip Neri and so many other churches, There's beautiful Counter-Reformation art. And what that Counter-Reformation art does is it does two important things. The first thing is art is to be a guide and an example of meditative prayer. 
This is the secret genius of St. Ignatius of Loyola, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross. At the heart of the reform movement is a reform of prayer. And the goal is to get people to pray with the scriptures and put themselves in the scenes of sacred scripture. To imagine themselves there. And so what they start to do is they start to work with artists. And now theologians consult with artists after Trent to make sure that the artist with his creativity and genius and ability is using art to depict the message of salvation and to be an example of prayer. And so I think one of the great highlights of this is one of the greatest artists at this time now is Caravaggio. Caravaggio's life was not perfect. But I, I tell my friends who don't like Caravaggio because of some of his moral failures, he was working with theologians. And his art is infused with deep theology, even if sometimes his life isn't. But the church is getting the best artists. Bernini, Michelangelo, Caravaggio. When you think of religious art, it's not cheesy in the 16th century. It's the best of the best. Because the message is the best of the best messages. And the church would not compromise. It wanted the best for the message of Jesus Christ and for the evangelization and reform at hand. So here's a Caravaggio that I love. And it's the calling of St. Matthew. And he does this sometime around 1601, 1602. But it was the idea of the jubilee year of 1600. There was a lot of Catholics coming from Spain who had just come back to Catholicism. The Huguenots who were Calvinists, who broke away, were coming back thanks to Henry IV. And he had left Catholicism, and then he came back, and he brought a lot of Protestant French with him. And so, as they're coming back, they go to the church of San Luigi, St. Louis, and that's where Caravaggio's art is commissioned, for these to bring them back. And what's beautiful about the art of this period, of the Counter-Reformation, is that in the Middle Ages, you think of St. Francis of Assisi, so much art, like the San Damiano cross, is on the cross. Christian art in the Middle Ages is focused on the cross, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful, and it's profound. Because it's to those who are already evangelized and catechized. But in the Counter-Reformation, the church realizes that a lot of people might be sacramentalized, but they're not catechized. And they're oftentimes not evangelized. And so Christian art in the Counter-Reformation is out to evangelize and catechize. And so what does it do? It now moves to drawing largely on the life of Christ, on the mission of Jesus. So here you have this picture of Caravaggio, and it's the calling of Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector. And what I love is you got all this money on the table, because that's what everyone's running after in the 16th century, is money. It's all about money. And you see Jesus calling Matthew. And Matthew is in the center with the black hat, and he's pointing to himself. Me? Lord, I'm sorry, Jesus, you want me? You can't be calling me. It's a beautiful depiction of the calling of Matthew. And of course, the light's not coming from the window. Where's the light coming from? It's in the direction of Jesus. It's a divine light, illuminating Matthew. And you see, the further you get away from Christ, the more people are focused on the money. And they don't even notice Jesus or Peter. And so the light of Christ is coming. So we are called to put ourselves into the scene of Christ calling Matthew. We're called to put ourselves in that point of conversion and giving up the things of the world for the things of Christ. Right next to that painting in San Luigi is another one of Matthew. And this is Matthew now 
after the calling of Christ, after being a disciple, and it's called the inspiration of Matthew as he's writing the Gospel of Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you notice in the first scene, Matthew was dressed in black, a rich black velvet. Now Matthew is in a kind of red with orange, and he looks like a flame inspired by the love of Christ. And notice the angel that's speaking to him above. The angel is like smoke going up from a candle. It's a beautiful depiction of inspiration. Now, in his first sketch of this, Caravaggio made a heretical sketch because he had the angel's hand on Matthew's hand dictating what he was to write, overriding free will. And so the theologians got in there and fixed it. And then Caravaggio used his genius and did a great job with this. But we get this beautiful depiction of the inspiration of, of Matthew. And you see Matthew going through conversion. Now, what's beautiful about this piece that most people who go and look at it in San Luigi miss is that this piece is right over the altar. And this becomes another key move of counter-reformation art, is it serves the liturgy. Catholic art, after Trent, serves two purposes. Personal prayer and devotion. It shapes and guides you on what to look for in the details and how to put yourself in the scene. And secondly, it is shaping you towards worship and liturgy. And this is right above the altar. And as I stood there looking at that, I realized as the priest would do the consecration and he'd hold up the host, the host would be right up to where Matthew is. So you see the inspiration of the word made written, and then you see on the altar the word made flesh. And it will be Vatican II that will talk about how there's two sources of nourishment for God's children. The word made written and the word made flesh, both of them given to us on the altar and on the table. The scriptures and the Eucharist. And so here you have that beautiful sense that what it's trying to show you is that the Eucharist, counter to what some reformers might say up in the north, the Eucharist is this beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit made present. Just as God can be present in his word using human authors, God can be present in the bread and the wine that's transformed and transubstantiated in the body and blood of Christ. And so this will be typical of counter-reformation art. You'll see this, by the way, the Pieta. When you go into St. Peter's, you look at the right, you see the Pieta there? Originally, that was behind an altar so that when the priest held up the host, you would see the Blessed Mother holding the body of Jesus with the host so that you would make the connection that that's not bread. It's the body that the Blessed Mother held in her loving arms. So counter-reformation art was to teach. It was to teach and to inspire what true worship and true prayer is all about. And as you... Look at all the reformers. Again and again, what comes back is how they hammer home one point in particular, and that is prayer. Prayer. St. Charles Borromeo had a great quote that I love, and he kind of sums up the spirit of the Reformation when he says, what is necessary for Christian perfection is three things. Heroic prayer. Heroic work and heroic suffering. Heroic prayer, heroic work, 
and heroic suffering. That's what's necessary. One of the next great movements in the Counter-Reformation is energy, activity, and good works become focus. This was brought home to me going on a lot of pilgrimages to Rome. One of my favorite churches is Santa Preseda, which is near St. Mary Majors. It's an ancient, built over a first century church. I was in the chapel of St. Charles Borromeo because this was his titular church. Even though he was the Archbishop of Milan, this was his church assigned as a cardinal in Rome. And there's a little chapel there. And in that chapel, there's four statues in the four corners. And they're the four cardinal virtues. And I've noticed this in other counter-Reformation chapels, like in Santa Budenciana's. Again, another Reformation chapel. And again, it has the four cardinal virtues. Why do they do that? Because Luther argued that we're saved by faith alone and not by works. And so... People like Charles Borromeo and the Counter-Reformation focused on, yes, we still have to do virtuous deeds. And they would love to quote a passage like 1 Peter, 1 Epistle Peter chapter 1, verse 5, where Peter, the apostle, says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. He goes on to say, this will keep you from being unfruitful in your service of Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we want to be fruitful, we have to pursue virtue and good deeds. So this becomes an explosive thing in the Reformation, good deeds. But I want to, I want to stress, it's not a Pelagian kind of work. As St. Ignatius and his spiritual sons, the Jesuits, they were known for working hard. And when they did all those good works, it came out of the resolution Ignatius was big on a resolution that out of prayer comes a resolution for action. A resolution for action. And boy, did they act. And so I think of Giles of Iturbo who talks about the bride in this sleepy winter and dormant. And yet now the bride is awakening. She's awakening with fervor, with good deeds. And it reminds me of that great line in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, where Jesus upbraids the church in Ephesus. And of course, Ephesus is where the Blessed Mother lived and the beloved disciple. And so Jesus, in the book of Revelation, upbraids them. This church, I mean, you can't get better than that. You know, who's your founder? Well, St. Paul came, and then we had John, the beloved disciple who was our bishop, and the Blessed Mother. Pretty strong credentials for the church in Ephesus, I'd say, right? So Jesus writes in the book of Revelation by the hand of the beloved disciple John, And he says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, But I have this against you, for you have lost the love you had at first. Repent and see from how far you have fallen and do the good works you did at first. Notice what Jesus does there. The good works are deeds of love. It's not a works righteousness. It's not an earning salvation. We can't earn it. But works and good deeds is what love does. Right? Works names love. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, if I have faith to move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And so action and virtue, deeds of love become the focus. And as the church wakes itself from the stupor, from this dormancy, 
She stirs herself up to action. And so all of a sudden, incredible things begin to happen. And all kinds of religious orders and all kinds of things begin to spread. And one of the things that happens is charity, works of charity spread everywhere. And the church begins to go through great renewal. And what I want to conclude with, the last line, John of the Cross was dying, and he suffered much from the church. He was imprisoned by the church, beaten by the church. As he's dying, because he was so maltreated, he asks his friars to read from him the Song of Songs. He goes back to the Song of Songs because it's a love story. And I guess at the conclusion, reform comes by those who love. That's the true reformers. God bless you and thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation by Dr. Tim Gray, which was recorded at the 2017 Napa Institute Conference. And now, our special bonus presentation by Ken Hensley, entitled, Understanding Luther. I'd only been a Christian for a very short time when I first saw the classic film, Luther, it was in a world religions class that my wife and I, Tina and I, were taking together. And I can still remember, you know, I was a baby Christian, maybe a year or two at the time. I still remember looking up at that screen in the class and seeing that humble Augustinian monk standing before the grim-faced, narrow-minded Catholic authorities. And as you know, there's never been a film made on earth in which Catholic authorities don't appear grim-faced and narrow-minded. And I remember looking up at the screen and seeing this young man standing there and insisting that he must stand upon the authority of the Bible. He must stand upon the authority of Scripture, regardless of what popes have said or councils, and even if the entire weight of Catholic authority was against him. And you've heard the words, unless I am convinced by Scripture, Luther said, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. I heard him speak those words, and again, as a young believer, I have to tell you, I was powerfully moved by what I saw. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be like that man. In the years since, I've read thousands of pages of Martin Luther's writings. In seminary, I took an entire course just focused on Luther's theology. I own and I've read a number of Luther biographies and lots of books on Luther's theology over the years, and now I'm a Catholic. Does this mean I now see nothing good in Luther? No. Does this mean that I now believe the rumor that was circulating at the time, which was that Luther's mother, Margareta, had had relations with the devil at a bathhouse in Eisleben, and that Luther was not even a human child? Well, I've investigated this rumor, and no, I don't subscribe to it. Does this mean that I think Luther had nothing valid to say in his critique of the Catholic Church at the time? The answer, again, is no. In fact, the church has admitted that much of Luther's critique of the moral state of the church at the time was true. In fact, the church in the early 16th century was in desperate need of spiritual reform. It was. Pope Hadrian VI confessed publicly in 1523, which is only two years really after the Reformation was formally launched, Pope Hadrian VI confessed this. Listen to what he said. This is Pope Hadrian VI during the early years of the Reformation. This is what he said. We know that for years there have been many abominable offenses in spiritual matters, 
and violations of the commandments committed at the Holy See. Yes, that everything, in fact, has been perverted. That everything, in fact, has been perverted. The first thing that must be done is to reform the curia, the leadership of the church, the hierarchy in Rome. The first thing that must be done is to reform the curia, the origin of all the evil. He's talking about the highest levels of Catholic hierarchy at the time. And he's saying abominable offenses have taken place, perversions that go all the way to the top. The position of the Catholic Church has never been to insist that everything Martin Luther said was wrong. What the church has insisted, though, is that the key solutions Martin Luther came up with were desperately wrong, mistaken, and they have led to the fragmentation of Christ's church into tens and then hundreds and now thousands of sects and denominations all over the world. The question I want to ask this morning and the story I want to tell you really is, how did this happen? How did it come about? Well, although Luther was baptized Catholic, although Luther as a young man became an Augustinian monk and was ordained as a Catholic priest, Luther could not find peace and happiness in his relationship with God. This is where it starts. Luther was a tormented soul. Luther's mind was filled with images of a God he could never please, no matter how hard he tried. Luther apparently tried to please God as a monk. It's said that Luther would fast for days without a crumb of food. Luther would throw off the blankets on his bed and nearly freeze himself to death in the German winters as a discipline. No matter what Luther did, though, he could never believe that God loved him. He could never believe that God looked upon him as his son. I was a good monk, Luther later wrote in life, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it would be I. All my brothers at the monastery who knew me can bear this out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. But no matter what Luther did, the questions kept coming to him. Have you done enough? Have you fasted enough? Have you prayed enough? Have you disciplined yourself enough? Is God now pleased with you? And for Luther, God was always an angry, impossible to please father. Now, I don't have time to go into it. I think that there's psychology involved in this, Luther's own personal psychology, the family that he was raised in, the situations that he went through. And it was also rooted in some bad theology that he learned and was taught. But at any rate, this was Luther's psychological state. And looking back on those days, this is what Luther wrote later on. I was more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God? I hated him. This is Luther talking about his time as, an, as a monk and as a Catholic priest. Well, over time, Luther earned his doctorate in theology, and he became professor of scripture at the University of Wittenberg, while lecturing through the books of the Psalms and lecturing through Romans and eventually Galatians, Luther came to a view of salvation. He came to a view of how you and I are made right in the sight of God, the doctrine of justification, that was different than what the church had taught. His famous doctrine of justification by faith alone, I'm sure you've heard that phrase, right? Sola fide. He came to a belief that we are justified in the sight of God by faith alone. No need to struggle anymore. No need to struggle in prayer or in fasting or anything like that. 
that by simple faith in Christ that he was justified and sealed forever. Now, Alistair McGrath, very, very great Protestant theologian at Oxford, he admits that the doctrine of justification that Luther came up with was a doctrine that had never been taught in the history of Christian thought. I don't have time to go into the doctrine in detail. This is just part of the story. But he admits that it was a doctrine that had never been taught in the history of Christian thought. And this is an Oxford Protestant scholar. In fact, he refers to Luther's teaching as a theological novum, a brand new theological idea in the history of Christian teaching. And this is in the early 16th century, okay? Sola fide. Well, as Luther began to teach this view, and as he began to write prolifically about this view and disseminate his thoughts throughout the church, he increasingly came into conflict with the Catholic Church. There were debates that he had with the infamous John Eck and with Cajetan, other Catholic teachers and leaders. But finally, he was called to stand before a Catholic tribunal. This is the famous and interestingly named Diet of Worms. He came to the Diet of Worms, and he was ordered to recant his views. His books were spread out on a table, and the Catholic authorities said, are these your writings? He said, yes, they are. And they said, do you recant? This is where the classic standoff occurred. Now, on one level, the issue at stake that day was the gospel, the church's teaching on salvation, on how we come to be saved and enter heaven, and Luther's teaching. But on a deeper level, I think you can see the issue was that of authority. The church was saying, in essence, you're wrong in your interpretation of Scripture. Luther was saying, in essence, no, you're wrong. The church was saying, no, you're wrong. Luther was saying, no, I've studied the Bible thoroughly, and I think that you are wrong. And the church was saying to Luther, no, your teaching conflicts with what Scripture teaches and what the authoritative teaching of the church has been for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Luther faced a watershed. And it wasn't about the gospel. It was about authority. What did Luther believe about who has authority ultimately to speak for God? Did the church have authority? When having, over the course of centuries, examined the light of sacred Scripture through the lens of sacred tradition when it had made formal ruling on an issue of faith and practice. Did the church have authority or not? Luther really only had two options standing there that day. He could abandon his position. He could say, well, I've been studying St. Paul in great, great detail, and I thought I was right, but I guess I'm wrong. Or he could stand upon what he thought the Scripture to be teaching and reject the authority of the church. And we all know what he chose on that fateful day, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and I will not recant. God help me. At that moment, what we call sola scriptura was born. Scripture will be the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church and for the individual Christian. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Now, think this through with me. What is the practical implication of taking that stand, of saying that Scripture will serve as my sole and infallible rule of faith and practice? What's the practical implication? If there's no authority on earth outside of the Bible itself, then while I would certainly want to take into account what theologians have said, what doctors of the church have said, what popes have said, what the councils of the church have decided, 
what the tradition of the church has been, if there really is no authority on earth outside of the Bible, ultimately, won't it be up to me to decide in my own study of Scripture what I think it's teaching? Won't it ultimately be up to me to determine what I think the true doctrines of Christianity ought to be? The practical implication of sola scriptura is what we call the right of private interpretation or the right of private judgment. Your right, my right, the right of every single Christian to determine for himself, to determine for herself what they believe Scripture to be teaching and therefore what they believe the true doctrines of the Christian faith to be. Now, it may surprise you a little bit, but Catholics have always had a right of private interpretation. It's just that it's been a limited right. It's a limited right. And what I mean by that is this. You and I are free to study Scripture. We're free to dig deep into the meaning of what St. Paul's teaching or James or Peter or anyone, come to new insights. We're free to do all that. It's just that we do this within the framework of what the church has already formally determined to be true. An example, I could study the Gospels. I could study the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, God and man, in great depth, and maybe I could come up with insights that no one has ever thought of before or heard of before. All these things could happen, right? But if I come to the conclusion in my study of Jesus, ah, I don't think he really was God, then I can know that I'm the one who's wrong, okay? Because I have freedom, but I have freedom within this framework. So we're like children in a playground, if you will, as Catholics. We're free to swing, we can go down the slide, we can even debate, we can grab handfuls of sand in the sandbox and throw it into one another's eyes and all that. But there's a fence around our sandbox to keep us from wandering out into the street and being run over by every new theological fad on four wheels. Well, what Luther and the other reformers did at that time was they took this limited right of private interpretation and they pushed it, well, over the fence and into the street, (laughs) and made it an absolute right, unless I am convinced. You hear that? We hope you've enjoyed this bonus excerpt from Understanding Luther by Ken Hensley. To purchase the full presentation of Ken's talk, or to purchase additional copies of Dr. Gray's presentation, please visit our website at www.augustininstitute.org forward slash talks. If this presentation has helped you in your faith journey, and you would like to hear more of these inspiring talks, we invite you to visit our website and enroll yourself or a friend in our CD or Download of the Month Club. We also invite you to visit formed.org, our state-of-the-art digital platform, which makes available to parishes and individuals such highly acclaimed video programs as the Augustine Institute's Symbolon, Beloved, Reborn, and Lexio series, the Hearts of Fire parish-based programs by Father Michael Gately, and many other faith-filled Catholic programs. Additionally, Formed.org makes available a wide range of inspirational Catholic movies, digital books, and audio presentations through its state-of-the-art technology. To learn more about the Augustine Institute Graduate School and its Master of Arts program in theology, with classes available on its Denver campus and through distance education, please visit AugustineInstitute.org. As our gift to you for listening to this presentation, we invite you to download free of charge our Catholic Study Bible app from the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press. 
This free app includes over 10 hours of insights from Dr. Scott Hahn, the entire Catholic Bible, and other amazing content and features. Lastly, as a listener, your input is very important to us in helping us to improve this program to reach many more souls for Christ and His Church. We would like to send you a free gift for your time when you complete a brief survey on the presentation you just heard. You will find the survey on our website, www.augustininstitute.org forward slash talks. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.